It is good to be together on Christmas morning. I'm reminded that my uh, pastor friends in Galveston, uh, there's a group of about 20 churches. I get to go and teach them uh, the Bible every January. They uh, inexplicably invite me back to come back and teach five nights in a row. I drive down there every night. But uh, about the question of having church on Christmas morning, so whether it's a Tuesday or a Friday or a Saturday, every Christmas morning, my friends have a church service. It doesn't matter which day of the week it is because it's Christmas. And so it's good to be gathered together in person and online today. And um, thank you for the abundance of concern that you all have shown for Paisley the dog. Uh, she had a good morning. We went for a little walk in the park and ran into some people who were in church last night. And uh, it was, it was good. I was just reminded as I told that story last night of the entrepreneur up in Tennessee who put his sign out in front of his yard there, right out in front of the mobile home. And it said, and I quote, veterinarian and taxidermist. <laughs> Either way, you get your pet back. That was his motto. Well, I'm glad we, I'm glad we got her back alive. And... Uh, and Melanie was telling me this morning that they asked, if something happens, do you want us to resuscitate her when she was under uh, the knife or under the anesthetic? And I said, what did you say? And she said, I said, of course, of course. Well, thankfully, we, um, we trust in a God who gives life and gives it abundantly. I'm inspired by the faith of those who have trusted God deeply Eric Metaxas tells the story of Harriet Tubman, who at the age of 26 made her way to freedom. She was born into slavery. She went along the Underground Railroad some 90 miles, following the North Star to Pennsylvania. And once there, she dared to make a dangerous decision. She risked her own freedom in order to give others theirs. For eight years, she led scores of slaves north to freedom during these trips she relied upon God to guide and protect her. She never once lost a runaway slave. She said, I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. She gave all the credit to God, explaining, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. I always told him, I trust in you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. The abolitionist Thomas Garrett described her by saying, I never met any person anywhere who had more confidence in the voice of God spoken directly to her soul. I love that story. I remember reading about it as a child. And as I read the book of Isaiah for these last several weeks, it strikes me that he has a similar confidence in God that he trusted God deeply and that in his trust, we are reminded that we also can trust. He says in Isaiah chapter 30, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. This is what God says to us today. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of the Lord together with me today, Isaiah 9, 6, 
and 7. And again, when we come to those four titles of Christ, I'd like for you to read them out loud with me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So when Isaiah described to Ahaz and the people of his day what God was going to do in sending a child who would fulfill these four titles, somebody might have wondered, Ahaz, for instance, or somebody else in Israel might have said, excuse me, but how is this going to happen? We actually hear it in Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel explains to Mary that she is going to give birth to the Messiah and she says depending upon your translation something like how will this happen how will these things be you're telling me things that are so marvelous that they blow my mind and I can't imagine how that would possibly happen how would I who have never known a man give birth to a child how how will God deliver his people Israel, Judah, back in the time of Isaiah, you, you can imagine them thinking, Isaiah thinking, there's no way we can overcome this powerful king, Tiglath-Pileser. You can imagine people in the first century world saying, but Caesar is in charge of the world. And Isaiah and the angels in the New Testament really say the same thing. Never, whatever you do, never underestimate God. Trust him because he is trustworthy. Just this morning it occurred to me that the strength of our faith is not in its subject, that is the person who trusts or believes. The strength of our faith is, of course, in its object, the one in whom we believe. And it turns out he has a perfect track record of promise fulfillment. In other words, he has always done everything he said he would do. So, of course, we can trust him. So if you say to me, why should we trust in God? Why should we place our faith in him? I just want to point out in that one phrase at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to show you three reasons why we should trust God to do what he says he will do. Because even faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain because it's not the size of our faith, but the size of our God. Reason number one, that you can trust God. Our God loves us with a zealous 
passion. So the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's the word. That's the promise that he gives. Uh, or, or, or as, as Gabriel tells Mary, uh, with us, many things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So the good news is God loves us. What, what Isaiah is saying, he almost anticipates Mary's question. How will these things be? Oh, God is going to do it because he loves us with a zealous passion. So what we find in the book of Isaiah, this same statement in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 32, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word zeal, sort of a burning fire. It actually means something like red hot. And the idea is God loves us with such a fervent love, such a fiery passion that his love, as we said last night, will not let us go. The problem for the people of Israel is that same word zeal, and this is such a negative connotation in our culture, the same word zeal means jealousy. It's not the petty jealousy of a person who just doesn't trust another person, but it's rather that zealous ardor that says, I have invested so much love in you, I am not willing to let you go. The people of Israel had fallen into this pattern of idolatry, and we see in Isaiah chapter 46, uh, beginning with verse 5, I think we have those verses, where God says, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it up on their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, their idols made of gold. And there it stands. From that spot, that idol cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it can't answer. Idols don't talk back. It cannot save them from their troubles. The problem for Israel is they were trusting in idols instead of God. And our problem is, so are we. Uh, Calvin said our hearts are these idol-making Factories and God's love for us is so great that he will not brook a rival. He doesn't want us to love anything or anyone in this world as much as we love him. And if you say to me, upon what basis does, does God do that? Well, it's, it's in the marriage ceremonies that we do around here, I suppose that everybody does everywhere, where we look at that couple and they say to each other, forsaking all others. Never once in my 42 years of doing weddings have I ever heard one of the couples say to each other, forsaking some others. I mean, I'm with you unless this person is, of course, interested in me, and then all bets are off. No, the point is exclusive commitment, and God is not being petty to ask that of us in view of, as we said last night, the incalculable price he paid in the broken body, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. To put it clearly, he has every right to ask us to love him exclusively. And we are called upon in Scripture to do exactly that. And the problem, of course, with our idols is, as Christopher Wright says, 
False gods never fail to fail. I've only heard two other people preach on the zeal of the Lord may accomplish this. Well, I heard Alistair Begg, and then I read Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I think I'm number three, so I think we're in, I'm in good company this morning. And it's Begg who makes the analogy to the love that we have for our children. We do a lot for our children, and we have the hope that they will love us in return. And particularly if some rival is trying to harm our children in some way then we go sort of all Liam Neeson in Taken. And by the way, if I didn't have a daughter, I wouldn't understand Taken. But because I have a daughter, I absolutely understand Liam Neeson saying, um, I will find you, and I have a particular set of skills. And in some ways, what the, the, the writer Isaiah is trying to say to us is, God loves us with this zealous passion that will not let us go, and he will stop at nothing to deliver us. As Chuck Bentley says, the thing about our God is, he says to us, um, do not worship any other God for the Lord. Listen to this in Exodus 34, 14. The Lord whose name is jealous. That's the same word, zeal of the Lord Almighty. His name, that's not a name of God that we use very often, but it is absolutely true that God loves us with a zealous passion. And so Crowder sings, he is jealous for me. Do you know that song? David Crowder sings, he is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And all of a sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize how beautiful you are to me and how great your affection is for me. Oh, how he loves us all. Oh, how he loves us so. Or if you're like me and you're of the Kurt Kaiser generation, by the way, his grandson Kurt was here last night. Uh, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Trust God because nobody, and by nobody, I mean nobody in all the world loves you more than he. Nobody else died for you. Nobody else gave their son for you. Nobody else. Doesn't he have the right to our trust, to our faithfulness, our fidelity to put him above all others. The second reason to trust God, God lives with limitless power. So it's that second part, the zeal, that was the first verse, that was the first point, the second of the Lord Almighty. Or maybe your translation says the Lord of hosts. Or maybe you have the message and it says the God of angel armies. The God who has the power to do what he says he can do. We talked about this when we looked at El Gabor. We talked about it last night in Peter Larson's statement about Christ who, who comes into the world and accomplishes his purpose. It's, his life is bracketed by, remember we said last night, two impossibilities. If you weren't here, Jesus' life was bracketed by two impossibilities, uh, a virgin's womb and empty tomb. He comes into the world through a door that is marked no entrance. And he leaves the world through a door that is marked no exit. So if he can come into the world in that way, if he can overcome death in that way, believe me when I say there's nothing that you and I have going that can keep his love away 
from us. That is to say, he lives with this limitless power. Nothing is too hard for him, and so he continues to watch over us. Uh, I was reading Craig Rochelle this week, and he was talking about a couple in his church who came to him when he was a pastor in seminary and said, the doctor said we can't have any more children. Would you pray that we could conceive? And Craig Rochelle said to them, um, so the doctor said you can't have a baby. And the church member, this so often happens, inspired the pastor when he said, so Pastor Craig, either we believe God or we're just playing church. Either we believe God or we're just playing church. I'm not asking you to accomplish it, Pastor. I'm just asking you to pray with me and to believe. And I thought about the three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, when they're called upon to bow down to this idol, and they say, we're not going to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, then I'm going to put you to death. And uh, I always think of it um, with the Veggie Tales story. I don't know why. I guess it's sort of imprinted on my brain, you know. But, but they say we're not going to do it. But this is what they say in Daniel 3.17. You might want to write this down. I don't think it's up on the screen, but you can write it down. Daniel 3.17. So, King, we just want you to know that the God we serve is able. Full stop. The God we serve is able. This is their confidence. We don't know if he's going to deliver us uh, from the fiery furnace. We're not sure. But what we do know for sure is he can if he wants to. That's a good place for us to begin with our trust for God. He loves us with a zealous passion. He lives with limitless power. So lots of things are too hard for us. But nothing will be called impossible with God. So we place our trust in him. And the third reason we can trust God today is because God leaves no doubt about his unfailing promise. So it's the zeal of the Lord Almighty, and then here's the word, will. Will accomplish this. Because God loves us, because he has the power, he will fulfill his promise. So here's the thing about God. Christmas, Christmas happens because God wanted it to happen. He brought his son. And again, I, I turn back to Isaiah uh, chapter 46 and verses 3 and 4. Uh, this has been one of my memory verses. I think the very first year that David and I, we're, in, we're starting our ninth year in Colossians chapter 1 of memorizing uh, 52 passages a year. And we recite them to each other regularly. And uh, I'm grateful for that. He's better at it than I am. I'll just tell you that up front. But I love I love memorizing scripture with him. In Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, God says, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth, have carried, God has carried them since they were born. I love this. Even to your old age and gray hair, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And then later in that passage, and I read to you the part about the idols in between, but he brings them back in verses 9 to 11. I just want you to hear God's confidence in himself. God is not lacking in confidence in himself. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all 
that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I've said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So we can have confidence in God because it turns out God has supreme confidence in himself. He, he, he's 100% on the test. He is undefeated. He has never lost. He can do anything but fail. So when he says, I will accomplish this, you and I can, with great confidence, put our trust in him. Again, in Numbers 23, 19, God is not human so that he should lie, not a human being so that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? It turns out that God does what he says he can do. And this occurred to me this week. Jesus is always on the right side of history because history is his story. So he can't be on the wrong side of it. So what he says is true. What he says he will do, he will do, and we can put our trust in him. And just one last thought about this. It's dangerous to doubt God because he has a perfect record of promise fulfillment. And here's the really good news. Our confidence in him inspires others to trust him as well. So this last thought. A.N. Wilson was a philosopher and writer in England, is a philosopher and writer in England. And when he was young, he wrote so fervently about Christ that people imagined he might be the next C.S. Lewis. But somewhere in his 30s, he turned. He even wrote a book in 2004 trying to refute the resurrection. He um, became a cynic, a skeptic, an atheist. And then there's this beautiful story. It reminds me of us this morning. Because it says that in 2009, he wrote this shocking piece in the prestigious Daily Mail and shared his experience of participating in a Palm Sunday service. He said, when I took part in the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? He had been a nonvert who became a convert. He said, partially perhaps it's because it's no more than the confidence I have gained with age. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I've known. Not the famous people, not the saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story or in quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. You hear what he's saying is, I came back to faith not because of famous people, but because of ordinary people whom I knew who trusted God when life became difficult. And then he concludes by saying, Johann Sebastian Bach believed the story. He set it to music. Most of the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 1,500 years have believed it. But an even stronger argument for my trust in Christ is this. Christian faith transforms individual lives, the lives of the men and women with whom you mingle in a daily basis, the man, the woman, or child next to you in church on this Christmas morning. This is why even on Christmas, especially on Christmas, we worship God because we never know who is sitting next to us whose faith might be faltering in some way, 
But somehow as they, Paul says this, if an unbeliever was in your midst and he heard you singing and exclaiming the glories of God, he would say, God is here. And in saying that, his faith would be strengthened by your faith. So we trust in God because he loves us with this ardent passion. We trust in God because he leads and he lives with unlimited power and we trust in him because he leaves no doubt about the fulfillment of all of his promises because Christ came because he died because he rose again we have good reason to put our trust in him pray with me father we thank you for your presence in this place we thank you that we get to worship you together this morning. And now we ask, God, that you would receive our worship as we serve you in these final moments together. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here who needs to know you or to return to faith in you, that today would be the day of salvation and that now would be their acceptable time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.